Acts chapter 26 today, the title of our message is Almost Persuaded. I want to ask you a question. What do these names have in common? C.S. Lewis, Lee Strobel, and J. Warner Wallace. Well, in each case, they were once strident atheists convinced that Christianity was nothing more than mythology until they were challenged to carefully examine the evidence. C.S. Lewis' atheism began to crack when he realized that his main objection to God, namely that the world was full of too much suffering and evil, that charge did not make sense unless there was some unchanging standard of good by which to measure evil. And so his argument against God actually proved the existence of God Lewis described his conversion like this. He said, quote, In 1929 I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Lee Strobel was a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune and when his wife became a Christian, she challenged him to investigate the Bible with all of his journalistic scrutiny. And so Lee Strobel spent two years trying to disprove the resurrection of Christ. His findings were later published in a book called The Case for Christ, and towards the end, here was his conclusion. He said, quote, On November 8, 1981, my skepticism towards the supernatural had melted in light of the breathtaking historical evidence that the resurrection was a real event. He said, the atheism that I had embraced for so long buckled under the weight of historical truth. And then J. Warner Wallace, he was a 20-year detective, a veteran of the LAPD. He was a cold case homicide investigator. He took all of his sleuthing skills and he decided to apply them to Christianity to see whether it was history or whether it was hoax. And one Sunday... Wallace rendered his final verdict. He wrote in his book, Cold Case Christianity, he said, I can remember the day I finally surrendered my naturalistic biases. I was sitting in a church service with my wife. I don't remember exactly what the pastor was talking about, but I remember leaning over and telling her I was a believer. Jesus was the Son of God. Maybe that testimony is something like yours. Uh, you don't remember the exact day. Uh, you couldn't recall exactly what the pastor was preaching about. But as you said in the pew, something happened in your heart. And when you got up and went forward, you said, I believe, I repent, I trust. I've gone from almost persuaded to fully convinced. You see, at some point in their spiritual journey, those skeptics went from highly doubtful to almost persuaded to fully convinced. And friend, faith is not a leap in the dark. Instead, it is a step into the light. And we place faith in the claims of Christ because the facts have proven that He is trustworthy and true. Now, if skeptics like those three that I just named, if they can do a 180 degree turn, then why is it so hard for some folk to believe? You can probably think right now of somebody who you've prayed for, somebody that you've been burdened for, somebody that you've witnessed to time and time again, and yet it seems as if they just remain almost persuaded. 
I've found that there are two different kinds of skeptics. There's the ones that say, I can't believe, and the others who say, I won't believe. There's the ordinary skeptic, that's the I won't believe, and there's the ordinary skeptic, that's the I can't believe. The I can't believe crowd are open-minded to preaching and logic and evidence, but the I won't believe folk are hard-hearted, and they don't want Christianity to be true. No matter how much evidence you give them, they don't want to believe because they are more satisfied and contented with living in their sin. They don't want to bow their knee to God, and they never will. I can't believe and I won't believe. Now today, we're going to meet two men who are very much in that second camp. Their names were Festus. He was a Roman governor over Caesarea, an actual historical figure. There are his years, 59 to 62 A.D. There's a bust of him. And the other character that we meet today is a man named Herod Agrippa II. He was the Jewish governor of Judea, the great-grandson of Herod the Great from Matthew chapter 2, and he was the last of the Herodian dynasty. He was the Jewish king over the region of Judea. And in Acts 26, what we have here is the record of Paul's last court hearing before he's about to be shipped off to Rome. And by now, as we come to Acts 26, Paul has been a prisoner for over two years. And he's been passed around like a political football from one corrupt courtroom to another. And Paul has another opportunity standing before Festus and Agrippa to make a masterful defense of his Christian faith. And I think that Paul's example here is a stirring challenge for us of what to do and what to expect when that moment arrives and our faith is called to be put on the witness stand. It might happen in a daily conversation with somebody at the store. It may happen as we meet a friend by the water cooler. It could happen over the fence, uh, talking one neighbor to another. It could happen around the coffee table. But I think that Paul shows us in this passage at least three principles for how to be a more effective gospel witness. And I think everybody here today wants to be a more effective tool in the hand of our master. So let's learn. What do we take away from this? Number one, I want you to see we must articulate a persuasive defense. We must articulate a persuasive defense. Now, in Paul's final speech, he shows us two ways of how to be a powerful gospel witness. And the first way under this heading is this. Share your conversion experience. Share your conversion experience. We are starting reading in Acts chapter 26, verse 12. The Bible says this, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen on the ground... I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then verse 15, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now stop right there. 
Now, if you're taking count, this is actually the third time in the book of Acts where Paul has shared his Damascus Road encounter with Christ. He did it in chapter 22 to an angry mob. He echoed it again in chapter 24 as he stood before Felix. And one of the things that you notice about Paul as you study his life, one of the most amazing qualities is that he had the knack of turning every situation into a gospel sermon. Don't give Paul the floor unless you're ready to hear a three-point gospel sermon. I like to joke and say that Paul is like the Forrest Gump of the New Testament because he's going to talk to and he's going to try and evangelize anyone who has the good fortune of sitting down beside him on the park bench. Uh, now as we read Paul's testimony here, he goes back and he talks about the day that Jesus Christ zapped him on the road of Damascus, the day that his life was utterly flipped upside down, the day that he was blinded by the glory of the risen Christ, and the day that he walked away a different man. And as you read Paul's testimony, that begs the question for you and I, when was the last time you shared your story? When was the last time that you gave your Jesus story, your God story, to somebody who needed to hear it? You see, we think that evangelism is just for the high and mighty. It's just for the theologian or the preacher. But you know what? You don't have to be a superstar theologian to tell somebody about Christ and what Christ has done in your life. All it requires is that you share your Jesus story in a way that communicates the gospel and truth and love and makes Jesus the hero of that story. My story is just one tiny thread in the larger tapestry that God has been weaving down through the ages of one soul after another coming into intersection with Him. And my story becomes His story because Jesus entered my life and changed it. Now every testimony has three parts, right? It has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. That is, who you were before Christ, how Christ saved you, and the difference that Christ has made in your life. Every salvation story talks about sin and the Savior and salvation. And every story always comes to a critical conjunction point and it begins with this, but God, I used to be this kind of person, but God... I used to think this kind of way. I used to go to these kinds of places. I used to do these sort of things. But God came into my life. I used to be the drunk that everybody made fun of and said he's hopeless and worthless. But God came into my life. And ever since then I put down the bottle and ain't picked it back up again because I got a draw of the living water. Uh, I used to be the bad parent. Uh, my kids were afraid of me. I was dead beat dad. I didn't show up. But God came into my life and Jesus changed my heart and now today I have a relationship with my kids oh let me tell you about my marriage it was marriage on the rocks it was trouble in paradise we fought and we cussed and, and we were at each other's throats all the time but God came into our little house and he changed everything and now today we know how to love one another as God tells us to I used to be the village atheist. I could tell you every argument against God. My heart was hard. I had my facts. But Jesus stepped into my life and now today I'm telling you I'm different. 
I used to be religious. I used to be that one who was there at the church every time the doors was open. I could quote to you scripture and I could check off each box from my religious checklist of things that I had done. But one day I realized that church ain't enough. That being good ain't enough. That reading the Bible ain't enough. That you've got to have Jesus in your life. But God came into my life and all of a sudden he added joy and love and peace unspeakable full of grace and glory. And it ain't about religion, friend. It's about a relationship. All it takes is, hey, this is who I was. But God... <laughs> But God. Now some of you may be a little hesitant to share your story. Let me encourage you today to be bold. Because there's a few things about your story that you need to know. Your story is unique. Your story, no, it may not be as dramatic as some folk. And don't we say that, well, I, I don't have some big powerful story to, to share. But you know what? It's your story. And there's not another one out there like it. And friend, it takes just as much of God's saving grace to pull that old sinner out of the deepest pit as it does to keep you from a lot of heartache, regret, and sin. Uh, there's a thing called saving grace and there's a thing called preserving grace. And I praise God that He saved me as a young person because He kept me from a whole lot of sin and evil and heartache in my life. Your story is unique. Your story is undeniable. You know, you talk to skeptics and they'll want to argue with you. They'll want to stump you with all kinds of hard questions. But friend, one thing they cannot deny is a life that's been radically changed by Jesus. They can't argue with that. And if your faith hasn't changed you, then it's time for you to change your faith. Your story is undeniable. It's unique. Your story is underestimated, friend. Don't let the devil silence you with fear. Don't give in to the excuse, well, I... I can't tell it as pretty as, and as dramatic as somebody else. Listen, your story is more powerful than you think. And you never know how of what God has brought you through is going to directly connect with a situation that's going through somebody else's life. And when you tell your story, your story gives that other person hope that, hey, if God did it for me, He can do it for you, friend. You see, when you share your story, people see that Jesus can save anyone from anywhere at any time. So share your conversion experience. Most of you have not heard the name Jacob Koshi, but I want to tell you about him. I read his story from the Gideon's Internationals. And I was amazed as I read his story how much it paralleled the Apostle Paul. Jacob Koshi had always had a drive for success and money. In fact, he grew up on the streets. He was street smart. And he found out that he could make a living by selling drugs. And so that's what he did. He became a drug kingpin in one of the major cities here in the United States. And he made millions of dollars every day selling poison. And you know what? Many of you remember in the 1980s, the war on drugs. Jacob Koshy was one of the drug kingpins that went down in that. And as part of his punishment, not only did he have to serve hard time, but he had to go through a drug rehab program. And in his testimony, he said that he had a really difficult time in drug rehab because he was a chain cigarette smoker. 
And of course, when you're in rehab, you can't smoke. Well, being the inventive drug dealer that he was, he figured out a way to get tobacco smuggled in to that drug facility where he was staying. And he went to the library and he checked himself out a Bible. And when the tobacco came in, he would rip off the pages of that Bible and he would roll his own cigarettes and that's how he kept his habit going up. One day he said he fell asleep with a cigarette in his hand. And he said that when he awoke, he noticed that the cigarette had all but burned out and what remained was a charred scrap of paper inside his hand. He said he looked down at his hand in that little charred scrap of paper and he saw a phrase on there that rose the curiosity in his mind. And you know what it was? It was a verse from Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jacob Koshy said that he got curious about that. So he checked out another Bible from the library and he began to read and he read through Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and he got to that conversion story of Paul again and he realized, hey, if uh, Jesus could change somebody like Paul, then he could do the same for me. And he said there in his cell, he knelt, he prayed, and he asked Christ to forgive him and change his life. This man eventually went to Bible college. He became a missionary. He serves in the country of Singapore today. And in his testimony, here's what he wrote. Listen to this. He said, who would have believed that I could find the truth by smoking the word of God? <laughs> you tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. Friends, that's a miracle-working God of the gospel. He takes drug dealers and he makes them into disciples. Uh, he takes old slave traders and he cleans them up and he makes them into hymn writers. He takes atheists and changes them into gospel advocates. He takes Saul's and makes them into Paul's. Uh, there's nobody so good that they don't need to be saved and nobody so bad that they can't be saved. So you see here, share your conversion experience. And then B, we also notice here, share some compelling evidence. Share some compelling evidence as you articulate a persuasive defense. Paul was a master at this, and notice what he does in verse 22 and 23. He says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, watch this, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Verse 23, that the Christ must suffer and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul shared his conversion experience. He said, let me tell you what Jesus did for me personally. And then he moved on in this passage, and as he preaches them, he said, and let me give you a couple pieces of evidence that proves that Jesus is the Son of God. He was a masterful apologist. And you say, well, what is he apologizing for? Not that kind. When I say apologist, I mean apologetics as in the rational defense of the Christian faith by using logic and evidence. In other words, what I mean by that is we appeal to their head before we ask them to believe with their heart. We show them that this is not just a hope-so salvation. This is not just pie in the sky by and by. This is not just religious platitudes, but this is grounded in history. It is real. It is verifiable. And it is a no-so salvation. 
And that's what Paul did here. Now, friend, if you haven't figured it out yet, we live in a very skeptical age. Used to, a man of God could just open the Word of God and preach from it, and people would say, wow, the Bible, it must be true. But Satan has got blinders on the world today. There's a lot of hard hearts, a lot of skeptical hearts today, so that when you open the Bible or you quote the Bible, the average person on the street says, well, that's just your truth. That ain't my truth. You see, we have to be prepared to answer some basic questions. And that means that as God's people, we got to do some homework. You're not going to get enough just by coming and listening to me preach. Although I will prepare and do the best I can to feed you, you have to dig in on your own. And you need to be able to answer some really basic questions because as you encounter skeptical people, they're going to ask you things like, well, how do you know that the Bible is reliable? How do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? How do you know that He is the only way? What about the Muslims and the Hindus and so on? You know what Jesus said His greatest command was? He said, here's the greatest command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and then the part that we leave off, mind. Our mind. And many of us have given Christ our heart, but we haven't given Him our mind yet. You can't afford to be mile wide and inch deep in this world. I'm not trying to win an argument, but I am trying to win a soul. And I can't expect somebody to believe in a gospel that I can't explain. And so Paul does that here so brilliantly. He takes two lines of evidence and he backs up his claims that Jesus was who he said he was. How did he do that? Well, in verse 22, notice what he points to there, fulfilled prophecy saying that nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Do you know one distinctive that sets the Bible in total opposite to all the other so-called religious books, the Book of Mormon or the Hindu Bible or the Quran? Our Bible has something that no other religious book can claim, and that is predictive prophecy, that hundreds and hundreds of prophecies have been fulfilled right down to the gnat's whisker. In fact, do you know that Jesus in His first coming fulfilled 300 prophecies just in His first coming? And some of those are utterly astounding. I want you to see some of these. Look at this. His birthplace in Bethlehem, spoken hundreds of years in advance, Micah 5, 2. That He would die in 33, the very year that He would die, Daniel 9, 26 predicts that. That He would be virgin born, Isaiah 7, 14. That He would come from the right lineage of Abraham and Judah and David, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver according to Zechariah 11, that his hands and feet would be pierced of what David wrote of in Psalm 22. And friend, David wrote that a thousand years before Jesus and before crucifixion had ever been invented as a method of execution. And the Word of God predicted that this is exactly what would happen. That he'd be crucified among thieves according to Isaiah 53, that his side would be pierced, that Lots would be cast for his garments and that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. There is no way anybody could have just made this up or aligned their life in such a way to fulfill these things. It was history written in advance and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming outside of uh, time into human history fulfilled every bit of it. In fact, one man who used to be a skeptic, a man named Dr. Peter Stoner, he wrote a book called Science Speaks. And he calculated the probability of just one person, 
What would be the probability of one person fulfilling just eight of those? And Jesus fulfilled 300 of them. Here's what he said. Guy way smarter than me. He said the chances were 100 million billion. One chance. And 100 million billion. That's one times 10 to the 17th power. That's a number way outside of my league. So here's what he said. He said here's the equivalent of that. He said... Let's say that you take the whole state of Texas and you bury the whole state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollar coins and you take one coin and you mark a red X on it and you fly a helicopter over the state of Texas and you randomly throw it out there. He said, then you take an old boy and you blindfold him and you set him out to wade through the state of Texas to find that one red X silver dollar. He said, the chances of him finding that by random are the same chances of one man fulfilling eight prophecies. Friend, it's not made up. It can't be. It's the Word of God. And then he also pointed to not only fulfilled prophecy, but the resurrection of Christ. Notice what he said back in verse 23. He said this, very clearly that Christ must suffer and that being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul adds the post-resurrection appearances to Christ as evidence. We know that the, nobody stole the body. We know that people weren't hallucinating on the day of that first Easter. We know that folk just didn't invent the resurrection story to pass it off and make themselves famous because nobody would do that and then die the death that the disciples and the apostles did. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 8. Look at what he says. He names the order of the appearance. He says he appeared to Cephas, verse 5, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then verse 7, he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, one untimely born, he appeared also unto me. In other words, Paul says, look, I saw the risen Lord. He changed my life. But if you don't believe me, go ask one of the 500, or go ask James, and don't take my word for it, and they'll tell you the very same thing. You see, Dr. William Lane Craig, he makes a comment. He said... If you were to take all of the Easter witnesses mentioned here in the New Testament and you were to bring them into a court of law and you were to cross-examine them for just 15 minutes each and ask them, did you see the risen Jesus? Tell us about Easter. Tell us about the risen Christ. He said if you talk to them for just 15 minutes each, it would take you from breakfast on Monday until dinner on Friday to hear all of that eyewitness testimony. And then he said this. He said, after listening to 129 straight hours of eyewitness testimony, who in the world could possibly walk away unconvinced? I think about a, an atheist that I heard who came to Christ. And Jesus just totally demolished all of his thinking and his worldview. And Jesus radically changed this skeptic. And he said in his testimony, he said, I'm saved today. And I was the least likely person that you would ever expect to come to Christ. And now today, he said, I don't even remember the arguments that I used to fight against God. <laughs> That's how much the Lord had changed him. So to be an effective witness, we must articulate a persuasive defense. And then listen to this. We must ask for a personal decision. We must ask for a personal decision. Fast forward to verse 27. And look at what happens here. 
Verse 27 says this. This is Paul talking. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul is not afraid here in this passage to go to the jugular. And he puts Agrippa on the spot with this pointed question. And what is Agrippa going to say as the king of the Jews that he didn't believe the Jewish prophets? And this whole scene as Paul is preached to this powerful duo of rulers and then the tables are turned and you understand it's not Paul that's on trial here. It's Agrippa before Almighty God. What are you going to do with Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with the Word of God? In other words, he says. Let me just take a little soapbox here and get a little bit politically incorrect. Can I do that? Biblically correct, but politically incorrect. Let me just go ahead and tell you that the gospel at its core is confrontational. There's no way around it. The gospel forces us to get off the fence and make a decision about Jesus Christ. And that's not popular in our squishy culture where we're concerned about who we're going to offend. And maybe somebody might not like that post that I put up on my social media. And, and they won't like the way that I said that. But you know what? It's not about feelings. We can't make judgments about eternity about how we feel. We have to base it on something unchanging. And that's the Word of God. Friend, if you're going to be an effective witness, listen, you must inevitably direct people to render a verdict about Christ. That's why I preach the way that I do. So that at least if you walk out of here, you can say, well, I don't believe, but I believe that at least he believes what he's talking about. And we need to have that kind of conviction in our lives. Listen, sharing Christ is not merely conveying information. It's not merely making a suggestion. Hey, you better get saved so you can have your best life now. No, you better get saved because you're lost and hell bound without Him. I'm not just conveying information or making a suggestion. I'm not just having a conversation, friend. I'm after conversions. And a gospel that does not confront is a gospel that cannot convert. There's a lot of debate these days in churches. Of all things, the altar call. I think Christians can find anything to fight over, can't we? <laughs> Do you know there's been a debate for several years about whether the pastor should even do an invitation anymore? Do you know how old school this is? This kind of preaching and, and this kind of service? Listen, some say pastors shouldn't do altar calls. They're outdated. That's a thing of the past. We don't want to offend anybody or make them feel bad if they don't make a decision. Some say you shouldn't do an altar call, pastor, because it plays on people's emotions. I'm going to tell you what's going to feel real bad when you wake up and find out you're in hell one day. That's going to feel really, really bad. Some say an altar call sends a message, the wrong message to the congregation that evangelism is just the pastor's job. Let him do it. Some say, well, we don't see them in the Bible. That's not biblical. We ought not do them. Let me tell you something. Here's why I do altar calls. Here's why I preach the way that I do. Here's why I ask 
for a personal decision because the Bible says today if you hear his voice do not harden your heart because James says that life is like a vapor it appears for a moment and then vanishes quickly away because Hebrews says it is appointed once for a man to die and after this uh, the judgment because Jesus said hey if you deny me before men I will deny you before my father who is in heaven and because Paul said therefore we are ambassadors for Christ making an appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Hey, do we believe that souls are at stake or not? I'm not up here just preaching a pep talk. I'm trying to lay out the word of God and say, you better make a decision right now. Are you going to serve the God of this world? Or are you going to serve the risen Jesus Christ who's coming back in power and victory? Hey, you better make that decision sure right now because it might be your last. You say, preacher, you're just trying to scare people. Hey, you ought to be scared about being lost and going to a devil's hell. I've seen them in this service. I have seen them listen to the preaching, walk out, say, preacher, I'll see you next time, and their life ends. That's how serious it is. We must ask for a personal decision. That neighbor, that co-worker, that family member, that friend, there has to come a point in life when you say, I love you this much because I don't want you to die without Christ. And I'm asking you right now, be real with me and tell me where you stand. Is he just a good man or is he the God man? Is he just myth or is he Messiah? Is he son of God or is he just lunatic and liar? And ask for a personal decision. At least you can go to bed with your head on your pillow having peace in your heart knowing, hey, I did all that I could. God, I obeyed you. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, did you know that he was preaching on October the 8th, 1871? He was in Chicago. It was one of the largest crowds that he'd ever addressed. Thousands were gathered. His topic was this, what will you do with Christ? And Moody concluded his sermon, he said this, I wish that you would seriously consider making Jesus your Savior. And next Sunday, I plan on preaching about the cross. The service concluded with a hymn, but the song was never finished. For the roar of fire engines filled the auditorium. The streets erupted in panic because you know what happened on that day? The famous Chicago fire of 1871 blazed and almost wiped the whole city off the map. And D.L. Moody's sermon on the cross never came. And he left it a big cliffhanger. And he realized that was the biggest mistake of my preaching life because he said as people left the auditorium in panic that day, I didn't give them the chance to make a decision about Jesus. And many of them fled and went out and died in the fire. He said this, I have never since dared to give an audience a week to think on their salvation. We must ask for a personal decision. We must articulate a persuasive defense. And then thirdly, and I'm done with this, we must anticipate the possibility 
of disbelief. We must anticipate the possibility of disbelief. Paul makes his case to Festus and Agrippa, and I would love to be able to preach to you that they got down on their hands and groveled before God and repented, but they didn't. Paul saw two different reactions to the gospel that day. You know what? When you preach the, and you witness to people, you're either going to see reception or you're going to see rejection. Here's what Paul saw that day. First off was scoffing. Notice Festus. He said as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Don't you love his boldness? Festus, he says, Paul, you've gone crazy. And Festus represents the way most people naturally respond to the gospel. You mean to tell me that I'm a sinner? Oh, what an insult to man's pride and man's intelligence. You expect me to believe in that kind of God? How do you even know that the Bible is true? <laughs> you think Jesus got out of the grave? Scoffing. We've all encountered it in this world. That's where Festus was. But you know what 1 Corinthians 1.23 says? If we preach Christ crucified, He is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. I shared the gospel one time with a man. Oh, he was hard. He was cold. I shared the gospel with him and he said, That's foolish. He said, I'm willing to admit that there is a God. He said, but Derek, I don't believe in the God of the Bible. I said, let's think about this. Come, let us reason together. I said, you tell me which one makes more sense. I said, if I die and I'm wrong about Christ, I lose nothing. I said, but if I die and I'm right about Christ, then I gain everything. I said, but if you die and you are right, you don't get anything. I said, but if you die and you are wrong about Christ, you die and lose everything. Now tell me which one is the fool, the one who stands to gain everything or the one who will lose everything. There was scoffing and there was skepticism. Notice verse 28. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, watch this, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? If you're reading it in the New King James Version, I love the way it renders it. You almost persuaded me to be a Christian. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. And to be almost saved is to be totally lost. You think about all the tragic almost of the Bible. Judas spent three years with Jesus, heard all the sermons, saw all the miracles, died without Christ. The rich young ruler, he came to Jesus. What must a man do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus told him, he said, you've got to take all your stuff and sell it because 
That stuff that you have is an idol. The Bible says that the rich young ruler walked away sad and almost. Think about the two thieves on either side of Jesus. One reviled, one believed, one repented and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. There was another skeptic that day. He was almost, he was so close. He heard the promise, he saw the Messiah, but he didn't believe. Think about Felix, he heard the gospel, but he procrastinated, the Bible said, for a more convenient time. Friend, the door to heaven is right beside the door to hell. You may scoff and laugh your way into hell, but you won't laugh your way out. You know what, Agrippa is so tragic because he's like so many others who miss heaven by 18 inches. That's pretty close, isn't it? You say 18 inches, what do you mean? I say 18 inches is the distance between your head and your heart. There's a lot of people who are going to miss heaven by that short of distance. You see, it's not about head knowledge. Agrippa knew the head knowledge. Paul said, you know this stuff. It didn't happen in some sequestered corner of the world. You know what I'm preaching to you is true. It's not about what you know. It's about who you know. It's not about just facts. It's about facts informed by faith. Faith trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And friend, you can come to Him with all your doubts and you can have imperfect faith in a perfect God. You don't have to have all that stuff figured out yet. You can come to Him just as you are. Adrian Rogers tells a story in one of his books. The great story that he tells. He went to the hospital one day to do a ministry visit. And he said that as he went into that hospital, he was visiting a church member, standing there beside the bed. This person was getting ready to have surgery. He shared Scripture. He prayed with that man. And he said that the door of the hospital room was wide open. And he said he was, you know, kind of projecting, not talking very loud, but loud enough to where anybody who could pass by could hear the conversation being had in that room. And Dr. Rogers said that he wrapped up his meeting with that church member, and he said as he began to walk out that hospital door into the hallway, he started making his way down the hallway, and he heard a voice. Hey! Hey, come back! Help me! Dr. Rogers said he got a couple of feet past that door. He turned around. He went across the hallway from where he was, went into that room, and he said he saw an emaciated woman laying on her deathbed. And he said, ma'am, would you like me to get a nurse? She said, no. She said, I don't need a nurse. She said, are you a preacher? <laughs> are you a preacher? Are you kidding me, Dr. Adrian Rogers, the prince of preachers for the 20th century? Are you a preacher? Funny how at the end of life we all of a sudden become interested in spiritual things. She said, no, I don't need a nurse. She said, are you a preacher? The lady said, I, I was eavesdropping. She said, I couldn't help but listen to what you were talking about to that person across the hallway. I heard you talk about heaven and I heard you talk about hope and I heard you say some about Jesus. He said, yes, ma'am. 
He said, I am a preacher. And she said, I'm dying. She said, and I'm not ready to meet God. Can you help me know that when I die, I'll see this Jesus that you were talking about? Adrian Rogers said as he shared the gospel with her, he learned that that woman had never heard the gospel in her life. It was her first and her last opportunity. And he said, ma'am, what do you think? She said, I'm convinced. I need Jesus. He said they prayed right there. She received Christ. He said, ma'am, I'll be praying for you. Dr. Rogers said he learned later on that day that that woman had passed. And almost that became a certainty. You see, friend, think about it. If she never would have cried out and said, Hey, don't pass me by. Come back. That's the offer of the gospel. Jesus is coming by. Will you receive him or will you reject him?